Hello and welcome to this episode of Tomorrow Comes Today, the thought leadership podcast from St. James's Place Wealth Management. I'm your host, Matt Potter, and in the studio with me today, we have Rog Gardner of St. James's Place. We'll be hearing from Professor Geraint Rees, one of the world's leading experts in AI, and Janelle Shane, an American researcher who's made it her life's work to find out exactly what AI could do for us and how badly it could undo things. We'll also be hearing from Iona Bain, pensions expert, on the pensions gap and exactly what we can do about it. Hello and welcome to the new podcast from St. James's Place. Rob, would you like to uh, introduce yourself a little? Yeah, so I, I joined St. James's Place uh, about a year ago. Uh, I've, I've been a client for over five years. In fact, my whole family are. Uh, m- my responsibility is really... Uh, at the heart of it is delivering financial well-being in a world worth living in. Uh, so financial well-being is everything from financial education, the value of advice, the future of advice. A key part of my job is how you invest your money and where you invest your money, which comes onto the second part of a world worth living in. Uh, I am passionate about making sure that we have a sustainable future. Uh, we all live, or most of us have a really good chance of living to 100 and therefore uh, there's no point in having lots of money in the future if we've completely trashed the planet. Uh, so, yeah, that's what I do. Fantastic. And we'll be hearing more about those responsible decisions regarding investment and what we should all be doing later on. Uh, we have also uh, Alice Wilkinson, who's one of the editors working on the St. James's Place magazine. Alice. Hi, hello. Hi. She's, uh, she's our uh, millennial in the room because we'll be hearing from <laughs> Iona Bain about what people like Alice should be doing, but also what I suppose the world is telling us to do yeah. and whether that's always the same thing. Now, our next guest is one of the world's leading researchers into AI, and it's meeting with human intelligence. He's Professor Geraint Rees, and he works at University College London. But he was in Australia for a symposium on artificial intelligence and the way in which it's replacing the human mind. Over to Paul Culliver of the ABC. With all the headlines it's making, you could be forgiven for thinking AI or artificial intelligence provides all the solutions. It does everything from running our homes to running our governments. But is it really the answer to all our problems? And should we even want it to be? One man who makes the meeting of AI and human mind his business is Geraint Rees. I met him in Adelaide, where he's attending an AI symposium at the University of South Australia. Geraint, hello to you. Hello, delighted to be here. Before we get into this chat, we should probably just say, what is artificial intelligence? So artificial intelligence is the counterpart for machines of what we think natural intelligence is. So we all think about ourselves as intelligent people. We're going about the world, perceiving the environment, trying to figure out what our goals are for the day uh, and what we need to do to achieve them. Artificial intelligence are machines that can do exactly the same, that can perceive their environment, figure out what their goals are and take actions to try and get there. Is there cause for alarm or concern about what we might see AI being capable of? Not in the way you might think. So at the moment, the capabilities of human cyborgs, if you want to defend your home against attack, uh, an author once recommended just lock the doors 
Um, and if you want to do, if you're really, really paranoid that they might be there to unlock the doors for you, um, paint the doorknob black uh, and your door black and they'll have a hard time even seeing the door to, to open it. So things that we do really easily, just walking up to a door, opening it, walking in. Um, at the moment, even the most advanced robots with the most advanced artificial intelligences find it incredibly difficult. So the idea that we should be worried about that being just around the corner um, is, is uh, not a sensible idea. What we should be worried about, though, are those very qualities that enable deep learning, lots of data all around the place. We all generate a data trail every minute of every day. Um, we ought to think about how do we control that data? Who has access to that data? Uh, and maybe that's fine if it's data on, uh, about, about my web searches, but maybe it's not fine if it's data about my health data that's being used to train an artificial intelligence uh, machine. When it comes to the general discourse around AI and when we see lots of news reporting around it, is the term AI overused or incorrectly used when we're starting to learn about these technologies? Well, the funny thing about AI is no one actually really agrees on it. There's no international agreement on what that term actually refers to. And so when we hear all these reports, um, we're always, uh, uh, they're always usually accurate in that they're referring to intelligent machines, new types of algorithm that can do things. Um, but uh, it's such a broad range of different types of algorithm machines uh, that we shouldn't be fooled into thinking there's a sort of sim sim single common underlying thing there. Um, about the excitement, I mean, all technology tends to excite people. We live in a world full of technology. I get excited uh, about developments in technology. Many people do. One characteristic of, of our societies is we tend to underestimate uh, the long-term impact of some new technology and overestimate the short-term impact. And I think some of that's what's going on here, right? People are getting very excited um, and thinking dramatic advances in artificial intelligence are just around the corner. Um, some of that's probably not true, but equally, we shouldn't think that it's not going to transform our world. In the longer term, it absolutely is. Other examples that you've seen of reporting and, and conversation about technologies that are labelled AI but, in fact, are not... Well, sometimes I, I see things, for example, that, that you think, hmm, is that really AI? I saw an advert the other day for a toothbrush which had AI in it. Um, now, I, I, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, I don't know. Uh, but it strikes me when we're getting to toothbrushes with AI, we're, 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 we're not really talking about the things that are going to transform our society. Um, so are people using AI in words to mean sort of computer is in it? Yes, maybe sometimes. But is there something really exciting underneath all that about a new way of training these uh, computational machines to do new things? Yeah, absolutely. There is something there that um, will transform the world of work, the world of education, the world of play. And of course, a lot of it is already there. If we take out our cell phone, um, there are AI algorithms in there recommending new things for us to download, new songs for us to listen to. Uh, new restaurants to go to. So people are using these things every day that have these kind of algorithms embedded in them. Um, that's not perhaps very obvious, uh, but it certainly has already transformed, you know, for example, how I found a restaurant when I came here in Adelaide and needed something to eat. Um, I whipped out my phone, I looked at the recommender system and I found somewhere really rather tasty to have, uh, have a nice burger. Are there problems and jobs that we think that humans will always do and robots 
or AI will never be better at. One of the ways of thinking about this is that um, uh, AIs or robots are pretty good at tasks. Um, humans, um, most of our jobs involve some tasks, but actually quite a lot of our jobs don't, don't involve what's obviously a task at all. For example, we're talking here together. Um, is that a task? Well, sort of, but it includes all sorts of things. We're, we're, we're talking, we're thinking, we're reasoning, we're looking around us, we're doing all these things. And so I think what, one way of thinking about it is jobs that involve a high degree of routine, repetition, um, they are vulnerable to automation. Um, but jobs that involve a high degree of knowledge or creativity or thinking skills that are much more difficult for machines to reproduce at the moment, um, they are less vulnerable. I have a question then that I've got a stake in. Will AI ever be able to do journalism? Well, that's a really good question. AI is, of course, already in journalism. There are AI uh, bots that, can, that, that are being tested that are writing newspaper articles trying to pull in the information from all the sources and auto-generate these newspaper articles. At the moment, some of those efforts, to my mind, are a little bit clunky. You think, oh, that's not quite what I normally read in a newspaper. But it's certainly the case that these, these bots are getting better and better. Does that mean that journalism is, is, is dying? Well, uh, you, you tell me. But my take on it would be what is really interesting about an interview is the way that the interviewer and the interviewee can interact with each other, can dynamically adjust what they're talking about, can go down particular avenues. That's why I listen to the radio um, or watch a TV interview, because I want to see that interplay. And I think that's going to be much, much harder to, uh, to, to uh, reproduce. And even in print journalism, um, sure, may, maybe an AI bot can uh, give me the facts, but often when I read a newspaper, I want the opinions, I want the thoughts, I want the columnist to tell me what they're thinking, and I want the interpretation. So again, perhaps what will happen in journalism is the humans in the loop will be doing a lot more of that, and a lot more of those think pieces and those things that really provoke our thoughts and, and, and make us think about the world. Um, and, and maybe that would be great. If you're just a citizen you're already interacting with AI. So what are the things that if you're walking around with your phone in your pocket and you're seeing, you know, television screens, you're being suggested things on apps, all that sort of thing, what are the things that we should be thinking about and we should be concerned about uh, as we see an increasing presence of AI in our lives? So I think it's the very simple things like who has control of the data I provide to these companies? Do I have control? Am I giving it away? Am I comfortable doing that? Um, maybe you are, maybe you're not. But I, but I think you should be thinking about that and having a position on that. And thinking about who, who does the regulation here? Who makes sure uh, the devices I use are safe? Um, do, I, do I trust that? And um, Do I want government to do that? Am I comfortable with a company doing that? The, these are the sort of questions. They're questions you'd have about any technology you buy for your home, that might not have AI in it at all. Um, but they're, they're just the same questions as you'd have. Of course, it's also interesting to think about the possibilities of AI as we're thinking about those today. And so I think that th those are equally important. What would we want AI to do if, if AI is this amazing, magical tool that's going to be able to solve many problems? Um, I, I think it's right for citizens to be thinking, well, what problem would I like it to be working on? 
Um, let's not leave it to the, to, to the boffins or to the scientists to determine that. Let's actually have some engagement. We see that in some areas. So, for example, uh, in my hospital uh, back in London, we have a strong patient engagement because we're asking patients, well, we're really interested in these new technologies, but what are the problems that you really want us to work on that concern you? And we won't necessarily always do exactly what they say, but the important thing is that people are feeding in their ideas and we're taking account of those and thinking about those. And I can't resist asking you, what is the weirdest use of AI that you've ever witnessed? I, I think the weirdest stuff I see are these so-called deep fakes. Uh, deep fakes are the, this way in which we can train neural networks, let's say, to um, generate faces and splice my face, let's say, onto some celebrity's body or whatever. And if you go on the internet, you can see some pretty weird splicings and some pretty weird stuff. Um, it's a lot of fun, um, but sometimes uh, it can be a bit upsetting. And of course, deep fakes as well uh, are, are, are more broadly, people are a bit worried about them. Um, if you can create a fake of a president um, speaking words that you put literally in their mouth, um, how can you trust what you see on the news? I think the answer to that is reputable journalists, reputable broadcasting companies, um, and, and good, um, solid reporting with documented sources. Um, but you can certainly see some weird stuff out there on the social networks. Geraint Reese, thanks so much for your time and please enjoy the rest of your time in Australia. Professor Geraint Reese there with the ABC's Paul Culliver. Now, Rob, I couldn't help picking out a couple of things in what Geraint was saying there that really sound like, uh, I suppose, the, 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 the place where AI and, and investment uh, and so on come together to define this good life. I mean, can you see a point where people are making decisions about what they should be doing based on an algorithm? Or will there always be a need for that exploratory, that analytical human element there? Yeah, so I think there are many levels to that. A really important point is he mentioned Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right. and it and it struck me that it wasn't you know at, at the beginning of the last century, John Maynard Keynes said that you know a hundred years from now we'd only need three hours a week, three hours a day to work, and yet with all these tools and all these apps, and you know I, I'm 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 quite passionate, I'm, I'm quite a technophile, and I love the fact that my phone knows intelligently when to set the alarm for which day and. Uh, it tells me where I need to be and my plainness from Sonos all comes through, but we've never been busier. So there's a, so there's a paradox here. Mm. Uh, at the end of the day, there's no point in being wealthy unless it gives us choices on where we need to invest our time. It's really easy to forget that point. And that's about this kind of, uh, why are we doing all of this? If you're saying, well, how does this fit into investment decision making? Uh, the reality is actually uh, simple AI, as Geraint talked about, has been around for 40 plus years. So quant investing uh, has been around for a long time. Uh, I, I do think we are going to move beyond the mystique of this star fund manager who has some magic approach mm -hmm. to one which is probably more augmented. And so, you know, I love chess. I was a huge fan of Gary Kasparov, and it was amazing. Nineteen ninety-seven, when you know he lost to Deep Blue. If uh, if any of you uh, are listening and haven't watched AlphaGo on Netflix, yes. which talks about Deep Mind and artificial intelligence and explains how it works, uh, that 
the, the thing that strikes me is that even today, a human plus a computer armed with AI can be just a computer with AI. And so I think what we're moving to is this kind of idea of a centaur, which is maybe the, the sort of body of AI, but still with a human for context, still with a human for creativity. Uh, to me, that has to be the direction of travel for better decision-making around investments, whether that's what stocks and shares to invest in, how much in stocks versus property versus bonds, how much risk should you be taking uh, to have enough money to retire. You know, absolutely. That, but by the way, that's been happening for the last 40 years. It's probably just not obvious. Right. I mean, there is something, isn't there, about uh, somebody said that humans have a habit of competing with machines and feeling threatened by them until the point where they work out that they can actually just be using them. And it seems very much to me that um, AI can offer us huge potential in terms of distributing tasks from our intelligence, almost allowing and delegating to it so that we can get on with the things to which we can add insight and depth and imagining things that haven't already worked out and played out within an algorithm. Is that, you know, that, that sounds to me like the human element is very much still there. And of course, he was talking about human to human contact as part of um, understanding patient need. And I think the idea of that we can understand somebody's life just as a set of data points may need something richer as well. Yeah, look, I mean, I think we've got to remember that, you know, it wasn't that long ago that in Victorian Britain time, our entire education system, which still exists today, was designed to turn us into human robots. Yes. To all think yes. and act the same. So we have a schooling system, which, by the way, is replicated globally, which is really a first version of how do we take humans to act like machines to do delegated federated tasks, which is Taylorism, is Fordism, let's get people in a factory and do the same thing over and over again. Machines are much, much better at that. So if you're in a job or a role where you do the same thing day in, day out, then you're going to feel threatened by that. Now, I'm going to bring Alice into this uh, for a little while. Alice, you, of course, um, we used uh, 10, 20 years ago, people used to talk about digital natives and people who had own, whose only experience had been of a world with internet. Yeah. Now, your only professional experience as a journalist yeah. has been of a world uh, with AI. Is this something you, f you feel very natural about or is people even talking about this starting to sound a little bit like, uh, you know, the vicar's taking over the youth club and trying to understand something that's actually already a fact of life? I think people are more hungry for authenticity than this kind of robotic approach. And I think that's definitely something that's developed more and more. Like, I, I think I worked in a newsroom as an SEO editor and the content became very coded and I think right. people are very they're, they're more savvy to it now the readers um so I think we're actually kind of yeah like, as you were saying we're moving away from the robots taking over and it's actually humans using you know the analytics to come up with really yes. good content but it's it's not what people want to read or, or engage with they want a human it's it's something we and we're all familiar with the uncanny valley you know this response uh, that humans love things the more realistic they become, but then as soon as they become almost human in the way that they interact with us, chatbots and so on, we freak out and we don't like it. Is there something fundamentally uncanny about this attempt mm. to, to, to claim that AI can do everything, to claim that it can run our kitchens or, or write our articles or, or make decisions for us that possibly a human mind should make? One thing Jorraine didn't touch on is this concept of exponentiality. Yes. Uh, Thomas Friedman wrote about this in a book called Thank You for Being Late and really said the world changed in 2007. 2007 was when the iPhone came out. 2007 was really when cloud computing took off. Uh, 
2007 solar panels and the cost of it has just collapsed. Uh, drones are able to carry double the payload that they were able to do. So no one needs a film crew and a helicopter pilot because you can buy a drone for $100 and film the most amazing 4K HD footage yeah. anywhere on the planet. So, uh, and, and what they're talking about is the confluence of all of these exponential technologies coming together. And the reality is our brains are unable to fathom that. So it, it, I, for me, it's all a question of time horizon. Do I think that may be true in the next two years? And back to the quote, which is really a Bill Gates quote about uh, underestimating you know, change in the long term and overestimating in the short term. I think that's right. I, I do think that these things will come together in an exponential way that we've never really thought about. On the subject of the unexpected, and I suppose of asking questions of humans and machines, Janelle Shane is our next guest. She's the author of a blog, AI Weirdness, and the book, You Look Like a Thing and I Love You. Her job really is to take AI and look at what the unintended consequences of its applications are. Now, on the day that Twitter was revealed to have bundled into its audience packages for sale certain extremist beliefs and groups, and Amazon had been shown to be using AI screening of resumes with the unintended consequence that anybody who didn't look like one of the males on the board was screened out, I asked Janelle whether these unintended consequences were baked into the very idea of AI. Fortunately, people are becoming a bit more aware of that than they had been in the past. So we're starting to see pushback against algorithms that are kind of handing down biased systems or biased uh, decisions that then get into the systems that decide things like loans and who gets an interview. Yeah, it is a it is a problem, and you know, in in. It's not the algorithm's fault, of course, and that's one of the things that I don't think is always clear, is that the algorithms have no idea what these uh, groupings of people that they're making really are. Uh, it's They're just trying to copy the humans. That's the task that they've been given. And unfortunately, human behavior just has these signals in it that the algorithms are copying, uh, sometimes amplifying, because it can sometimes be the only consistent signal as well. We don't really know how to sort resumes, but we can at least tell which of these resumes are not like our executives. And of course, there's one of the things, I mean, for, for listeners, I should say that you're your Twitter feed with with training the neural networks to deliver um, to deliver sort of new ice cream flavors or, or or what would the perfect movie for a Christmas uh, perfect title for a Christmas movie be is just a sort of entertainment, isn't it? I mean, tell t can you can you introduce just for those who don't know what what you do and and some of the some of the fun that comes from that. I have a blog called AI Weirdness, and what I do on this blog is just kind of poke around at uh, things that algorithms can do with human inputs, trying to copy everyday human things like uh, Christmas songs or names of cookie recipes. And the what I love about these kinds of experiments is that the AIs tend to get confused and they tend to you know, copy the letter combinations without understanding words. And then you get paint colors like... Uh, uh, horrible gray and stinky bean. <laughs> you know? uh, and yeah, it's just a kind of delightful way to sort of peel back some of the smoke and mirrors that kind of sometimes make algorithms look more 
competent that they are than they are because people are trying to sell a product. Then when you see them completely failing to understand how recipes work and that things happen to ingredients and you get them telling you to you know, roll the water and fold it into cubes, you start to realize just how very limited these algorithms actually are. So that's really interesting. As, uh, on your TED talk, you mentioned that when people think about a, a kind of dystopian future, or the problems of AI, that they are go, they're thinking of, uh, as you say, sort of Skynet or cyborgs who sort of look at you or, or, or HAL and say, no, I can't help you do that. You know, I'm going I'm to rebel. <laughs> but actually, the, uh, the, 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 the truth is that probably, or the, the truth is that they will try to fulfill the commands that we give them, but just may need more micromanaging than we've ever anticipated somehow. We have difficulty sometimes in anticipating what is a easy problem and what is too hard. Like even people who know that these are not science fiction level algorithms and they're computer science scientists, they're programmers, they try to build some of these systems and then they realize how very difficult it is, for example, to uh, fold laundry. They think, oh, well, you know, we've solved chess. How much more difficult can laundry be? Laundry is very, very difficult. And, you know, so is something like answering the phones or, you know, making restaurant reservations. These things that we kind of get, uh, call low-status low tasks are some of the most difficult things that we can uh, throw at an algorithm. We've talked a little bit about, you know, involving and inviting either regulation or uh, a slightly a slightly broader uh, base among the kind of the development community for these things. Do you see any other solutions or any things? Is it is it part of education that we need to be talking to school kids? I suppose about take AI with a pinch of salt, or the algorithm is not necessarily your friend or your enemy. It's just a thing, uh, a tool. Yeah, I think education is definitely a part of it because you know we're at a point now in society where you don't have to be a computer scientist uh, to have to make decisions about AI. Uh, you get companies now that are being offered things like AI-powered resume screening, or you get schools that are offered some kind of AI-powered surveillance. And so you get these sort of products emerging in all these different areas where ordinary people are coming in contact with them and having to make these kinds of decisions about whether to use these algorithms. And yeah, we really need our population in general to know the difference between science fiction, AI, and real AI, know what the pitfalls are, know what questions to ask uh, to kind of anticipate some of these problems. And do you think there's a, this is, this is fascinating, there's, there's this idea that AI is, is somehow being, as you say, trusted too much or being... Uh, uh, kind of having all sorts of things delegated to it. But as a tool, it does seem, mm-hmm. and actually I'm, I'm going to use the example of your um, your wonderful, the, the results from your neural networks, it does seem as if it can occasionally deliver, um, I suppose, blinding, coincidental strokes of genius. Is it that it can actually just be a really nice thing to use to get some left field insights or some left field uh, things to sift through? For sure. It's a really fun, creative tool, and it definitely requires some editing, uh, you know, to present that list of Christmas movies. I had to go through hundreds and hundreds that were not interesting. Uh, So uh, there's definitely when you say AI creativity, it really is, you know, AI as a tool to enhance human creativity. Uh, But it is 
a really powerful tool. And I think we're only seeing the beginning of what people can do with these kinds of tools. Right. Finally, one of the things that I'd really like to, to get from you is a sense of where this goes next. So what do you think would be the, the, the next developments or where is it going to go? Do, do we think that this is turning into something? Is this the early Wild West stages, a little bit like the internet in 1993, where there's a lot of dumb stuff out there and a lot of stuff that will fall away? Or are we looking at something that's much more developed already than that? There is still a degree of chaos. People are able to build some really bad algorithms or very poorly thought out algorithms, and uh, they don't always get challenged. But I'm encouraged that we're seeing more and more activists who are uh, kind of pushing back against some of these algorithms, or there are you know, more and more consequences now to building something that's really biased that uh, hope will uh, make people think twice in the future uh, before rolling something out. So yeah, I see lots of lots of places to be hopeful that perhaps uh, you know we'll have you know a little we'll have fewer of these uh, you could call it uh, kind of rogue applications where things are going bad. But you know there's also really big industries already being built around some of these applications that are problematic uh, like. Uh, facial recognition, recognition surveillance or emotion detection or resume screening or video candidate screening. So uh, there is a battle ahead for trying to kind of rein in some of this, uh, some of these bad news algorithms that are going to be perpetuating discrimination. AI researcher Janelle Shane there, author of AI Weirdness, the blog, and the new book, You Look Like a Thing and I Love You, out now. Rob, I mean, one of the things Janelle was saying there, she kept coming back to this idea that AI, it's, it's just a, a, an algorithm, it's just mechanical, and it's partly the, pro- the, either the, the problems are the problems with the people who are programming them, and the advantages are the advantages of the, of the people, the human intelligence that is setting them up. Um, tell me what your take is on that. The thing that struck me was when she said, AI is a tool to enhance human creativity. And look, this has happened so many times before, yes. whether it's the agricultural revolution, the industrial revolution, yes. it reminded me of you know the Gutenberg press and, and all the rest. So it, it is a tool and like any tool, it can be used for good or bad. And I think she's absolutely right. We need to teach people how to use it. The, to, 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 to sort of step back and zoom out, to me, this is all about context and content. And what AI does is it takes content and data and data has embedded in it a point of view or a scope. So if I asked you, what's the best way to get from here to Bank Station, what's the answer? Well, of course, uh, I would say straight down, uh, straight down the road and you walk and you cross over the old street roundabout. And of course, I'm talking about my experience, aren't I? Already, I've realised what we're doing here. You haven't checked my context. And so Absolutely. at a yeah. basic level, you know, we might use a sat-nav. And so the context might, what's, what's yes. the quickest way in time? Yes. Uh, what's the best way to take in the sights of London? What's the healthiest way? Yes. What's the most environmentally friendly way? And I think that's what she's saying about better questions. Or, mm. or I think I said better questions earlier, but she was saying yeah. asking the right questions. Absolutely. So I think this idea of context and content is key. And embedded in uh, these things is an assumption. So Spotify give me a playlist and say, this is the music you enjoyed the most last year. That's not true. It's the music that my daughters played the most 
And therefore it assumed that I love Frozen and I love Sound of Music, which I do, but I don't love them as much as Spotify thinks I do. Uh, and so I think this is where we need to be mindful about uh, how we apply these things. And there's a fascinating example that um, that prompted the first question was the, uh, and, and to which Janelle referred there, was Amazon's use of a CV screening or a resume screening uh, uh, an algorithm that actually the first thing it did was discounted every single female CV because it looked at the current successful uh, profile of board members at Amazon and because they had a skewed board it, it basically said you know uh, successful candidates are all called Bob Brad and Jeff uh, and and anything else is unsuccessful now that reminded me of an experience I had at school where we were asked to use a computer very early computer called the cascade and it asked a lot of questions about what career we would like you know to find out what we should be doing and I answered all these questions. There were 50, 60 questions. And then the very last question was, do you like to be out of doors? Uh, I like to be out of doors. Yes, I, going for walks, great. And because of the answer to that question, it proposed that I should be a shipbuilder. Now, if you, any listeners who haven't seen me, uh, I shouldn't be a shipbuilder. I should never have been a shipbuilder. Um, but also that was, that was oddly context-free, as you're saying. It, it, it had... I think the phrase I'm looking for is no emotional intelligence, but there was something about that, isn't there? About the idea of uh, it's our emotions and our kind of our, our insight that can deliver the, the real value. Yeah, and by the way, humans do this. So we all have an embedded context uh, and therefore I, I suppose what, what, they, what we're talking about, about journalism and all the rest mm -hmm. is the difference between data and uh, Geraint said exactly right, we can get a lot of information and that can be automated. What we don't get is insight. The reality is Donald Trump has a completely different context to Greta Thunberg, but we all understand yes. that. Yes. We are able to understand why, you know, when we try and understand why did Brexit happen, actually it's a contextual thing that you need to go through. And so your first slice uh, can be quite dangerous. And I think, look, by the way, as humans, we're just as guilty of this, which I assume, and you assumed, and imprinted on me what you thought the best way to get from A to B is. Right. Absolutely. But, but this is interesting because do we, do we see, um, is there something here for financial decision making as well where, where you have actually, I mean, I, one of the things that has, has often affected me is this sense that the financial services industry is going to talk to me in the voice of Robert Peston and, and say, we should all be saving more in XYZ, end of. And actually, that feels to me robotic and context-free in the sense that, well, maybe I'm not at a time in my life where I can do that. So maybe for me, it's about a different solution or bringing other things to the fore. And that sense of context seems absolutely priceless in this, in this context, if you like. Yeah. Well, so what, the, the big thing for me of, of what's happened over the last decade is that everything has become very black and white. Uh, you either like Coke or you like Pepsi, you like cats and you like dogs. No, I like cats and dogs. I like Coke and I like Pepsi. Uh, I'm conservative, I'm Labour, I'm pro-Brexit, I'm not. I'm Trump, I'm not. And, and actually, uh, life is so much greyer. And what does that mean for in financial services? Is I think it's really easy to assume you must save and millennials spend all their money on flat whites and avocado. This is just not true. Uh, but actually, all that happens is everyone loses out because I think then there's not a conversation about understanding trade-offs and go, right. yeah, no. So for me, a really easy thing is actually understanding that having a coffee a day 
and I can eat, I can afford it. And when I get the train every morning into work, what is that if I put that into a lifetime ISA, got tax relief, uh, and I got investment performance? And actually, the cost of that in three years, in ten years' time is three times the amount. Yes. And then I can make that informed decision. And I think no one gets to have the conversation about what's the informed decision. It becomes a judgment. Yes. And that's the danger. And, and I mean, I'm going to bring uh, Alice here in here on this. Of course, you know, I looked at you when, when we were, um, when Rob was referring to the, the assumption that everybody's spending too much on avocados. And, yes. and, and that is, is this something that you feel that there are assumptions being made about you either generationally or professionally? Uh, yeah, I think definitely amongst my friendship group, that's something we always um, discuss is that, you know, there, there are a lot of unfair judgments being made and what we're spending money on. And what I think, um, I mean, in my experience of money management, um, so I went to university and I was given, uh, you know, fees that I, are so sky high, I can't yes. um, fathom how I would ever be able to pay those back. So, yeah, like you're saying, breaking it down is something I've never been asked to do or able to do because before I was even earning money there was so much money I had to pay back that I couldn't earn. that's really interesting isn't it yeah sort of a sense of a primal wound that you have yeah. in terms of financial decision making and and I think look financial decision making and financial advice is becoming more like a coach is becoming more like almost like a money psychotherapist yeah. what, what are you trying to achieve I'm not going to make assumptions about the problem is if you type Google, you know, retirement to Google. It's just got a picture of old people on a beach holding yeah. their hands. <laughs> or, or, yes. So we, you know, we pre... So so it's easy to say AI is really bad, but actually as humans, we all have our own judgments. You were, beforehand, we were chatting and talking about the New York Times. Yes. The New York Times has a point of view. It has a set of data. The FT journalists have a point of view. Yes. I, I suppose we're able to understand that context. We haven't yet learned to understand what's the point of view of AI, the data that's been fed into it and the, the, the thing that's been driven out. Well, one woman who has got a point of view on a lot of the issues we've been talking about here is Iona Bain. She runs the Young Money blog and she's also the author of Spare Change, How to Save More, Budget and Be Happy with Your Finances and a forthcoming book, Own It. Now, she writes a lot on the pensions gap and the different outcomes that men and women experience as a result of decisions made earlier in life. I asked her what we could do to even the pensions gap out and what the problem was. The main problem is that our pension system is too closely tied to the world of work. And it's too closely tied to traditional ways of working, to full-time working, to a steady, predictable wage, and it's rooted in a past where people would get married, uh, the divorce rate was lower, and women who took time out of work to look after children or their parents could rely to some extent on their husband's pension provision. But we don't live in that world anymore. We have a new generation of women going out to work, earning their own living, um, having jobs often that are just as good, if not better, than their male counterparts. And we have a strange situation where actually women in their 20s are now typically out-earning men. It's only when they get to that crunch point, when they start a family, that they then fall behind, that they then uh, typically experience a pay gap, 
not necessarily because they are being discriminated against, but because they're just simply taking that time out of work. And when they come back, they're less likely to get those promotions, less likely to move up the wage ladder, and therefore their pension suffers. That's quite something. I mean, that's a, that, that is, as you say, a huge figure. Is, it, is that all accounted for by those, those critical few years? Or are there things before and after that that you can see that the, the industry could do? It's mainly to do with that break from the workplace and therefore we need to address those structural inequalities in order to meaningfully close the pension gender gap. So obviously ongoing efforts to try and address the gender pay gap will definitely help, um, but that's not the whole solution. I think one of the problems is that women feel that they have to go back to work very soon after having children and then they have the huge cost of childcare to think about and we know that women disproportionately take on that cost compared to men. So we have to think of ways of rewarding women for roles outside of work because whilst women are going to work in record numbers, they may not be going to full-time work and they may be doing part-time, they may be freelance like me, and not necessarily doing very badly in in the financial stakes. They could be doing perfectly well, but they're just locked out of that pension system. You've said some fascinating things in the past about the communication around pensions as well, and the way in which um, I know it's, you know, some of it can sound quite uh, alarmist or some of it can sound quite uh, statty. Where do you see that as being problematic in terms of the gender uh, pensions gap? Well, I have a controversial point of view, although I don't think it should be controversial. I believe that uh, men and women do actually respond to information in a different way. And we can argue about whether that's biological or cultural. You know, in this context, in this discussion, it doesn't really matter. I think we just need to acknowledge that truth. And research by the Investment Association that's due to come out this year is going to back that up. It's going to show that actually women respond better to pensions communications that are geared much more towards outcomes, i.e. when they talk about what people can achieve in their retirement. Um, And nothing exemplifies that better than the new uh, retirement uh, living standards from um, the Pension and Lifetime Savings Association. And I think that that's a really progressive move because what they're saying is, is... Here is what your pension will actually do for you in retirement. And they're breaking it down into uh, consumerist goods that people understand. People understand whether or not their retirement, their income is going to be able to allow them to go on a nice holiday or to slightly slum it. And I think that that this is a big step forward. And I think the the real positive is that if we have more female-friendly pensions communications, it's not going to turn off the guys because actually I think a lot of guys want to have stuff that's a bit more human. Um, there's this assumption made that that people need to have it all explained in a very mathematical, statistical way for us to take it seriously. But I think that that is wrong and I think it has turned off a lot of people and made the subject seem far too complicated, dry and boring. So is this, is this a case where, although you, you could potentially see that um, things like pension statements might have to be written in a certain um, very matter-of-fact way, that that gap could be filled in by um, face-to-face contact and having a good old chat with a financial service provider or with an, adv- a finan- an IFA or something. Yes, but everything that I just said before about 
uh, printed and online communications applies just as much to the physical conversations that we have. So I have spent a lot of time in my career uh, writing about the world of financial advice. And one of the big problems with the financial advice industry is that it is, it is very male-centric. And a lot of financial advisors deal with husbands and fathers, and they don't deal enough with wives and mothers. And often women are not always intentionally, perhaps it's just unintentionally, left out of, of the conversation. And that's why I think we have such a huge problem with the divorce uh, pensions gap as well. So divorced women typically have just £26,100 um, in their pension compared to over hundred grand for um, a man so who is divorced. So I think we need to be getting women more involved in those face-to-face -face conversations and we need to be applying that human language, that more down-to-earth approach um, and, and focusing much more on the outcomes in those settings as well as online and um, in printed material. I'm picturing now some of our listeners sort of at home hearing this and thinking, well, is there something we can do? And obviously, you know, there are, there are takeouts for the for the uh, for the woman in terms of what she's trying to do and commit to to saving in in her pension. What what can their partners do to support that? And is there anything that that, that you, we can be saying? Look, guys, you know, come on, stand up here and. That's a great question. I think that um, guys are just going to have to step up to the plate until the structural inequalities are addressed. And it's going to take a long time to do that. So we do need that stopgap and we need guys to acknowledge that when uh, their partners are taking breaks from their jobs, that they are putting their pension savings at risk um, and that they are fulfilling a really important role um, that allows them to, to go back to work sooner and, and, and to bring home the bacon. And do you have a kind of, if you had a, a wish list that you would nail to the door, what would, what would that be? What would you say, this is what we need and we need it now? I think we need to have a, a savings safety net for everybody in the UK because one of the problems with auto-enrolment is that we are getting men and women to save into pensions and yet they don't have 200 or 300 pounds to get them out of a financial crisis and they're far more likely to go into expensive debt and really make their short-term financial problems worse. So I'd love it if we could see the SICAR uh, savings scheme rolled out for all pension schemes across the UK just so that people have that safety net. That's the first thing I would like to see. And secondly, I think the net pay anomaly, which I'm not going to go into because it's far too complicated, but it basically means that the lowest earners uh, in society are unfairly penalised in the auto-enrolment system. Um, that really needs to be addressed pronto. I own a Bain there. Now, Alice, listening to that, I mean, there was some stuff there that's talks directly to you. And I mean, I, I as, as, a, um, as a chap, I'm absolutely not going to... Um, even ask what what it was or make any assumptions. Tell me what your feeling was hearing that. Yeah, so I think there has been a lot of talk about shared parental leave, um, which when I get to that stage in my life, I think I would be interested in looking into that. But I, yeah, what was really interesting is that that has a direct effect on my pension, which I didn't know. Um, so yeah, I think part of those conversations and I've seen a lot of um, information promoting that shared parental leave, but no 
information about what, what that entails. So that's interesting because, of course, you know, I, I, had, I know about shared parental leave and yet it was always felt to me to be a nice to have rather than something that, um, wow, this has a direct financial impact on your spouse and on you yeah. in terms of longer term outcomes. I mean, yeah. that's something, if I'm, if I'm reading you right, that's something that you, you had thought as well. And it, yeah. Rob, is that something then, is that gap between knowing that, for example, there is such a thing as, as shared parental leave and, and knowing, you know, if X plus Y equals your outcomes later in life, is that something that the, the, the pensions industry or the media actually need to get better at? Uh, absolutely. This is all to do with context. It's all to do with decision making. And it's what, what decisions do we make today and impact in the future? So I'm married. I have two daughters. Uh, I sit on the World Economic Forum Council for Global Retirement and in, as part of a report written in 2018 about the pensions gender gap in retirement. So reinforcing the point Iona made. So globally, so not just the UK, women are 30 to 40 percent worse off in retirement uh, than in work. So the pensions pay gap, so the work, the gender inequality pay gap might be 10 to 20%. So why is it double? And by the way, this is not just in the UK, it's in Chile, it's in Canada, it's in Australia, all over the world. Firstly, women age 65 expect to live about two and a half years longer than men. Uh, Women will tend to outlive their husband by about four and a half years. Uh, For exactly the reasons Iona talked about, uh, women are in and out of the workplace. And the problem is our pension system is a hundred year old system designed in a world where we went to school, we went to work and we retired. Uh, so there's two issues. There's a gender issue and there's a gig economy issue going on. On top of that, behaviorally, women will take less investment risk than men uh, and women won't engage unless they understand stuff. And, and Iona's point about how, how to approach and engage. And the, what people don't realize is just that missing out on a couple of years in, your, uh, in that period where you take maternity leave and all the rest can have a compound effect in retirement. So what does that mean? So my wife and I, when I, when my second daughter, I took six weeks off. Uh, my wife went from full-time employment to self-employed. Uh, and by the way, our financial advisor uh, is female. And for me, it was always about making sure that the conversation we have is around the dining room table, my wife and I. Because my biggest fear is if I die, my wife needs to know where it's all at. And I'm amazed at how many friends I speak to who might be quite successful financially, think they know a lot of stuff. And I say, but what are you doing about your wife's pension? And they just haven't thought about it. To me... That's an absolute red flag. And it reminds me of the conversations that we were having around AI in the sense that can can people with historical data and actually I'm going to say historical attitudes Mm. see, if you like to quote Donald Rumsfeld, the unknown unknowns. There sometimes is the feeling of record store guy about financial advice. Mm. So I I have this feeling whenever I go to get my car sorted out that I'll I'll go in and the person will be be wearing a kind of utility belt and lots of tools and clearly be good at cars, which I am not, and will go, what's up with it then? And I'll say, "Uh, is it your carburetor? I don't know. And actually, so I get to the point where I would rather cringe myself into fetal position than go and talk to the mechanic. And I sometimes have that when I'm having a financial discussion with somebody as well. I'll say, I think I should be, can, I, can we sort out? Well, what is it you're looking for? A, a three-letter acronym or an eight-letter acronym? You know, and I'm, 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 suddenly my brain freezes. And the communications around that, yeah. uh, I don't know if that rings true to you, Alice, as well. You know. Yeah, I think there is a, a risk of feeling um, a bit stupid. 
Yeah. Right, a risk of feeling yeah, stupid. And of course, we're, we're British as well, and nobody wants to, to, to feel anything but calm. Yeah. Um, is, is that something that you think that, that communicationally, uh, as well as plain English, there's a sense of, as you said before, actually, or, or that, that the financial advice can be a little bit more like being a, a counsellor or a, or a psychotherapist? Is it a wraparound thing where we can discuss people's whole lives? So, sorry, that it absolutely needs to be whole lives because money is just a means to an end. It's well, not all about yeah. money. A car is just a means yeah. to an end. And uh, I think, look, the, the, again, this goes back to how we've trained professionals up, accountants, lawyers, doctors, financial advisors. Uh, and, and they think it's impressive, actually, to be able to use their three-letter acronyms. <laughs> and so often, if I find myself in a medical situation, I just say, sorry, I'm really sorry, can you just say that in plain English? Can you slow mm. it down? What does that mean? And a really good doctor, a really good professional can explain it. We know the best doctors have a good bedside manner. They don't bombard you in, you know, your heart rate's this or your potassium in your blood is that. You're like, well, just talk to me in plain English, back to that plain English. And I think it needs to be relevant for you and your life. And, and I think this goes back to the heart of it. The, the good financial advisors, the good professionals of the future will seek to understand you first and then think about how can they apply their knowledge and their understanding to help you achieve what you're trying to achieve or point out where you might be making decisions which might not be based on your best interests and, and bring that to, to light. And again, I think we're seeing a seismic shift across all professional services uh, about how, how we do that. And we know it when we get it, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, th and this is fascinating because we've, we've taken th two or three very disparate conversations. One about a, uh, you know, AI and how it's going to transform everything from from sort of automated decision-making to industries to uh, uh, Christmas movie titles, and one about the pensions gap. Um, and actually they come down to the same thing, don't they? Which is, which is context and a deep understanding of the individual and the circumstance so that, so that clear direction in the most helpful way can be given. To me, it's all about context. That's our title for the episode. <laughs> thank you, Rob Gardner of St. James's Place, and thank you, Alice Wilkinson. any of the sources and references mentioned in this episode, just go to sjp.co.uk slash tctpodcast. Today's studio guest was Rob Gardner of St. James's Place. The presenters were Matt Potter and Alice Wilkinson, and the producer was Nathan Copeland. Assistant producers Sarah Berksoy and Chris Marais, and additional reporting was by Stuart Knott. Tomorrow Comes Today is a St. James's Place Wealth Management John Brown Media production. And if you'd like to discuss any of the issues raised, just call your St. James's Place partner or email tctpodcast at sjp.co.uk. And as ever, the hashtag to follow live discussion of the issues covered today is hashtag tctpodcast. Podcast.